Uh, right now we're on Pollock Street. This used to be an area where many Jews lived. This is the Bethel Synagogue, the House of God. It's an Iraqi synagogue. Our community was a wealthy community and built several beautiful synagogues. The Magen David is the largest, but not the oldest. Um, Neve Shalom, which we'll see, and this is Bethel, which was built in the mid-19th century. Um, as you can see over here, it has some motifs, the menorah, which is the candelabra for the Jews. There's a clock tower on the top and the Star of David and the most beautiful stained glass window, which we will see from inside, which is quite glorious and throws beautiful lights across the synagogue floor. Uh, we will mount the steps, we'll enter the synagogue. On the left is a small room where people would congregate and it's an old Iraqi synagogue. There's a ladies gallery upstairs where the women and children sit and downstairs is where the men and the boys sit. So let's proceed. Yes. I always like to stop over here because this is a picture of one of the founders of our community and it's important to look at him because he's an Arab gentleman. Of course he's an Arab Jew which we don't usually put together nowadays because we think of Arabs and Jews as two separate entities but in fact we lived in the Arab world for thousands of years and it was not till the 18th century, 1790s that we moved to Kolkata and the founder of our community, who is an ancestor of my father's, uh, Shalom Kohen, came from Aleppo, Syria, but we're called Iraqi Jews because we follow the liturgy of Baghdad. And the liturgy of Baghdad, because that's where all the great Jewish scholars uh, resided, because after the first Babylonian exile, etc. So um, you will see that the synagogue is less Arab looking than him, because when the Jews came over here, they were impressed by what they saw around them. They wanted to become more British, more European, and they moved from being a Judeo-Arabic community to a more Judeo-European community. And so the synagogue that follows the, the Baghdadi style, the Middle Eastern style, in that we have a bima center place where the priest reads from, ladies' galleries upstairs, a hachal, which is the interior where we keep the the, the most sacred objects, which is the five books of Moses wrapped in beautiful silver casings. Um, where the, the outside of the synagogue looks a bit church-like because they were impressed and followed what the British were doing and must have seen St. John's Church and St. Paul's Cathedral and so began building in that style with permission from Baghdad that they could do so. This is the newly renovated synagogue the Bethel Synagogue which was completed this year. A lot of money was spent on doing so. But you can see the structure. It's quite lovely and shows also the wealth of the community. Um, let me take you in and show you the Bima. This is where the people who were reading the Torah portions read from. We didn't have a rabbi in our community until the 1950s, but learned, everybody was learned in, in Jewish ritual and rites since they would read from here. The ladies sat upstairs and here the benches are, are placed in a kind of a U because each section was for a family to sit in. And over here is where they would keep their prayer books. So these are beautiful um, prayer boxes where, which would be filled with prayer books. Okay, let's walk now up to the, the most holy place of the synagogue. Hebrew lettering saying, know who it is before you stand before whom you stand. And over here in this large area behind would be where we keep the Sefer Torahs, which we'll ask him to open up and show you at least from the outside. You can see what it looks like. These um, curtains 
over here are called parochet, okay? And uh, parochet really is a, in the center, is an emblem, is the person who gifted it in honor of a dead person and their family. And, you know, we go very simply to the grave with a white sheet, but this would be put on the bier for a while. And then basically it's taken out once or twice a year to respect and honor that person who, who had died. Um, and uh, it's a sheet that separates the spiritual from the material world. So it's on the gates. And in certain festivals, like ours, when we celebrate Simhat Torah, these um, beautiful parochets would be hanging down from all the balconies. Beautiful old fan with a long pole and lovely work on it. I can't see who's the maker of that fan. But, but you can see the, wind, the stars on the dome. May you multiply like the stars in the heavens. And over there is the Ten Commandments, which is the central. Uh, feature of the Jewish religion and you see it in the red window and on either side there was a window which was you know a college it, it was a space for God's light to enter you can see we have no images we don't believe in any graven images uh, we don't even take the name of God and over here these are the old structures for the lights to go in and basically when uh, you lit the oil lamp and there's a small glasses filled with oil this was before electricity was there and you'd place your oil lamp here and it would be filled with little um, glasses with oil lamps in it. And if we can turn around and look the other side, you'll see the beautiful um, stained glass window, which I think makes the synagogue really very, very special. And it picks up on the colors on the window on the stained glass. And I love the long, long fan rods, which are really lovely. And come speak to one of the caretakers yes. because there's a, they're all Muslim. They look after our synagogue and they've done so for generations. I think his family has been here for four generations. Here we have a lovely view from the balcony. As young girls, we would be looking down, looking at all the boys, looking at the men, passing our comments. They couldn't look, obviously, as up at us because the services were long in Hebrew. She didn't understand too much of. And I wanted to show you a couple of the beautiful chairs and the cane work, which a few of them still have. Here's a beautiful chair. This is done by in very fine cane with weavers, which were common in our day. We took it for granted. But now when I look at the plastic caning that's done on most chairs, I remember this with nostalgia and realize how much work went into the making of each one of these, you know. I think this is a beautiful view when you see this pillared colonnade and the wrought iron balcony. Actually, what I find so beautiful about this synagogue is from every angle, it really looks so lovely. So I would say the Magin David is a much grander synagogue. It's the king of synagogues. It's very majestic. But I love this synagogue, the Bethel, even though it's not my family synagogue. It's like a queen. It's just got more grace. It's mm -hmm. got more charm. It's, it's not overpowering, it's not overpoweringly wealthy, but it's, it's, it's great. These are the tandoors where they used to make matzah. Matzah is the unleavened bread. We eat it during the Passover festival. And this used to then be weighed and worked on over here and then taken to Jewish homes down these narrow streets. And uh, over here on the side is the wine cellar. It's closed right now, 
but we used to make kosher wine, which we used for ritual purposes, and we had a license to make that wine. And inside, there's some fabulous old vats, maybe five feet, six feet tall. Kosher wine is, uh, is wine that is made following Jewish dietary laws. So we have kosher food is the food that follows Jewish dietary laws. So Jews are supposed to only eat kosher food. And so you have kosher wine as well. And over here is a mikveh. A mikveh is a place where the ritual bath was sometimes done. So I'll just show it to you. This is the place where we would have the ritual bath when people did it before they got married. So it would be purified. And they were dipped, the women were dipped into the mikveh. Many people didn't do it at the synagogue. They also did it in some of the richer private homes had their own mikvehs or mikvah. And here you can see this, the mikveh used for ritual bath was designed and constructed under the directions of Rabbi Silman Sassoon in 1953. And he also bore the cost of its construction. Um, over here, we can look in, but maybe you can. Here's one, of, here you can see one of the, oh, you can see beautifully one of the old vats. There are many in there. And some, I think, came from China, some from here. Do you see this big, beautiful urn? Um, this was a very Jewish area. And whilst the first Jewish girls' school was in somebody's home, it followed like education for girls in India with the first school being in 1880. This school was built uh, for Jewish girls because they didn't want Jews to become Christian. There were a lot of missionary schools in the area. They focused on education, but they also had to learn their prayers and Bible and Tanakh. And most of the girls were familiar with prayers and quite often would go across to the synagogue if prayers need to be said. My mother went to this school and you can see at the time it was a very, very beautiful building. You can see some of the architecture, some of the decoration that's still left on the wall. Um, there were about, I think, maybe three or four hundred girls in the school at the time. And in the 50s, because the school was expanding and the Jewish community was still at its height and we had Jews coming from Burma, the members of our community thought it would be good to have a school that's in Park Street, which was now where many Jews had moved to. They had migrated from this northern cosmopolitan part of the city where Parsis, Armenians and Jews lived to the more anglicized central southern Calcutta. And so they built the Park Street uh, school, which we will go and see. There was a playground at the back over here. And um, the teacher, the, the principal who spanned both schools was Miss Luddy. She was educated in England. She was a wonderful teacher and she was really the, the motivating force behind girls' education. And she was also in the Jewish girls' schools of the 1960s. But when the school, the community started to rapidly diminish and uh, many had left Calcutta in the 60s and 70s, by the mid-50s they realized that the school were too large for the few Jews and so they started taking Indian students, I mean Hindu students and Muslim students and over a period of time it became a predominantly a Muslim school, it's probably 90% Muslim, not by design because the area where Park Street is and Royd Street has turned out to be a Muslim community. However, it's not at all surprising that we have uh, Muslim caretakers of our synagogue who look after our synagogue and Muslims who worked in our homes as cooks because they understood dietary laws were similar to ours and Muslim girls in our school. So I really like that about uh, Calcutta. And not only are we Arab Jews, but Jews and Muslims had very, very close relations as we did with many other communities. The Jews were very well integrated into the social fabric of the city. 
So um, this building was sold some years ago um, because it was occupied by the government. It's a post office right now. But um, I think you get at least a small glimmer of how beautiful it used to be in its heyday. Well, we're now on Pollock Street. As you can see, it's become a bazaar. But this used to be where lots of Jews lived when we first moved into the city. Behind us is the Jewish girls' school to locate us, and there's the synagogue. And here were many homes. Here's the Izzy Mansion, because there weren't just Jewish homes. There were Jews, Anglo-Indians, Parsis, Chinese, and all living in this area. And of course, many people, uh, of in, you know, Bengal not so many Bengalis, other Indians too. But there's an interesting story. My mother said it was her great-grandfather who traveled between Baghdad and Shanghai who first bought rickshaws to Calcutta from, from Shanghai, from China. And uh, the rickshaw business didn't do very well. And uh, he, his business closed down. But later, others adopted the rickshaw, which was really a major mode of transport. In those days, my family would travel by tram and by, especially the middle class, by rickshaw. And uh, my mother tells also in the tramways for Sabbath, because we're not allowed to use any money, there'd be a special pass for Jews, so they didn't have to give money. They could just show their token. And um, later, of course, there was cars and taxis, those very big American cars, but that was for the more wealthy. It was the middle class of the community didn't own their own cars, and my, my mother's family certainly didn't. So we've just come out of Pollock Street and we're in busy Bagri Market, and we're going to cross the main street. But as you see over there, you can see the tip of our synagogue, the Magin David. We've been encroached on all sides. It used to have a grand entranceway, and this ugly building in front was not, um, was not there. So you had a full view of the synagogue, and you could enter by carriageway. And uh, this Magin David has a steeple. Now, that's very unusual for a synagogue to have a steeple. But the Jews, probably seeing that the other churches around had steeples, wanted to have a steeple too. So they wrote to Baghdad and said, can we have a steeple in our synagogue? And the learned rabbis wrote back, yes, you can have a steeple, so long as it's higher than all the steeples around it. And so that's the story of how the Magin David got its steeple. And we have a clock tower too. We've just come out of the busy Bagui market. It led out from Pollock Street. And we're on the main road where we saw the Magin David. Over there is the Portuguese church. You know, the Portuguese were the first to come to Calcutta. And that's a beautiful church. On the left is the Armenian church, which is really beautiful also on Armenian street. The Nakoda Mosque is two blocks down this way. And over there is St. Um, Scott's Kirk. And on the right is St. John's Church. So really, this is a confluence of cultures. The Parsi um, Agiari is not far away. And so you can, and the Chinese temples too. There were nine Chinese temples at one point in Calcutta. So you can see how all the various traders from different parts of the world came to Calcutta, made it their home, and one of the first things they did was to make their houses of worship. So this is the Magin David Synagogue. It's the grandest of the synagogue, just like the Sassoon families are known in Bombay. It's the Ezra family who made this wonderful house of worship. Um, there was the oldest synagogue, the Nevi Shalom, and they, then they made the Betel, and then they broke down the Nevi Shalom, and this one big compound, they were going to make the Magin David. But of course, Jews, if you have three Jews, you have four Indians, if not five. And they couldn't agree on the name of the synagogue, so then they went and built their own, back the old synagogue in 1912. So even though that was the site of the oldest synagogue, it's now the most recent, and we'll be going inside the Magin David, which um, is, um, is uh, an ASI site, Archaeological Survey of India, and this too has recently been re renovated with the funds of the Jewish community. 
So this is the Magin David, the grandest of the synagogues. They say it's the biggest synagogue in Asia. Actually, the one in Pune, which is also for the Baghdadi Jewish community, says they're the biggest one in Asia. So I'm not sure how they count what is the biggest, is the square footage, the number of seats, but they're both competitive, we should say, as being the largest synagogue in Asia. There's the Navy Shalom. You can't, it's hard to enter from that side because we've been encroached on. So we go from this side, they've built this entrance, and here's the magnificent Magin David. And you can see over here their plaques to some of the founders and also to some of the young men who um, fell in the war and during the war effort. So he's going to put on a kippah. What's beautiful now is the stained glass light that's falling across the synagogue in so many places. Um, this is the Magin David, the same style, the bima in the middle, the women upstairs, stained glass. These, I believe, the pillars, stone came from Europe somewhere. Stained glass too. Um, it wasn't, there was no electricity when it was built. You can, but in 1912, did you know that Calcutta was the second city in the world to have electricity? So after London it was us, so we got electricity in 1912. And over here you can see um, the Psalms. There's the writing of each of the Psalms in Hebrew on the different arches. And similarly as the other synagogue, know who it is before you stand. But if we go to the Hachal where we see all the emblems, I can show you a much more complex iconography of the community. Um, over here, You can see, like I mentioned in the last one, the parochet, um, the windows for the light, God's spirit to come through. And here in that central sort of wooden board is the menorahs, the Ten Commandments, the cypresses overlooking the old synagogue, Kabbalic signs as well, and uh, which is our mystical uh, text. So again, no images and uh, the star-studded sky and the ladies balcony above look at the long long rods for the fans the old fan where the guy used to read the prayers not the guy the cantor or somebody from our community would read the prayers and where there's that red lamp there used to be a very heavy 40 kilo silver lamp which has now gone to a synagogue, a uh, Baghdadi synagogue in Los Angeles, I believe. I've not been able to get a picture of it. And over here again, an, over 100 Sefer Torahs, which were written in Baghdad by scribes. If you made one mistake in the five books of Moses, it was not kosher, you couldn't use it. And then they were encased in wood and then covered with silver. And each one is about this high and this big. Most synagogues in the world may have a couple. We had over 100 in each and in the 1940s when they had during Simha Torah, all the Sefer Torahs out. And nobody quite believes that a community of our size, 5,000 Jews, could have close to like 300 Sefer Torahs. These are Corinthian columns, as you can see. The wrought iron is embossed with gold. These chandeliers are new due to the renovation, but they were chandeliers. I 
didn't see very well, but this is, is that Sir David Ezra written on the plaque? The light is falling, but for the Ezra family who owned BN Elias company and was the major yes. industrialist of Calcutta, he was knighted. And this is also Joseph Ezra, his father, in honor of who the synagogue was built. And this is another Ezra. So you can see because they were the donators to the synagogue, which is why also the synagogue had a fight next door and built their own, because they thought there was too much Ezra in this synagogue. Um, let's go upstairs. We get a beautiful view of the Magen David from the ladies' gallery. Uh, you can see the patterned tiles. It's got the Spanish Sephardic influence in the section of the Hachal, the Bima, in the center. And you can see the play of light over there on the chairs, which I think looks so beautiful. And the diffused light also on the floor. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It's the holiest day for Jews on our calendar. It's the day where we ask God to forgive us for all our sins. And first we have to forgive everybody we've sinned against and ask for his forgiveness. And then ask to be inscribed in the Book of Life for the next year, so that we live the next year. It's a very solemn occasion. We fast the whole day. We fast for 24 hours. And it comes soon after the New Year. Now, in Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day for Jews all over the world, during the war in the 1940s, I don't remember the exact date, um, there were American troops and English troops all over the East. And uh, for one historic Yom Kippur, there flew troops from all over Asia and over the hump, Tibet, to come to Calcutta for the Yom Kippur service. And I in the 1940s, I can't remember exactly which date, and the synagogue was crowded. I think it had close to three or four thousand Jews, just the synagogue alone. And um, that was one of the sort of the, the most amazing days for the synagogue. And one that's memorable for Jews from around the world. They didn't think that they would be able to be in the heart of Asia, in the heart of British colonialism, in the midst of the war, celebrating, well not celebrating, observing Yom Kippur with Jews um, of Calcutta. So we're not allowed to have any picture of the Lord, uh, no image, no graven images. We're not allowed to bow before graven images, but we're always in our prayers, praising the Lord, God, He is one. And that's the basis of the religion, that God is one, He is all-powerful, we always praise Him, He is the Lord. So these are old, uh, it's an old ritual paint picture, and it celebrates God. It has the menorah, the name of the Lord, we always celebrate him and this is as far as we would go in terms of depicting you know our love for the lord so it's always in rich, ritual items the menorah and hebrew verses which praise him and there would be more and more elaborate ones but this is a simple one in the archway you have the magin david the star of david and it's written there magin david in the center it's a shield of david the star and uh, it says, may, only, may all who are righteous enter these gates. So this is the synagogue of my family and my father's family. And it was the first synagogue to be built before they fought 
with the Magindavid over the naming of the synagogue and then they came back and built it in 1912. So I grew up here. It was the oldest one and then it was broken down and then rebuilt in 1912. Um, and uh, I used to sit up there with my family. The chairs didn't face that way, they faced frontwards and my father and all sat around here. Um, this is a very small synagogue and I think it sort of is more the Iraqi traditional synagogue of old. It's less, I think, bombastic, less majestic. It's how we came as uh, more simple people who then made, we were, we were wealthy, we made a lot of money. But even though I always say we are a wealthy community, it's a wealthy community with a lot of poor people. 40% of Jews were poor because they kept coming in waves as refugees from all over the Middle East. But there were a lot of charities that looked after and took care of them. So we were a wealthy community with uh, free schools and hospitals and all those kinds of things for poor people. So it was a Mecca, it was an attractive place for Jews from the diaspora to come. And from Europe and from Israel, there would always be people coming here looking for money to build things in synagogues in their part of the world and in, um, in Israel, in Safat. In fact, the oldest grave in the synagogue is from a traveler from Safat was visiting Calcutta. So it was a moving community, it was a diaspora community that spread from Basra, Baghdad to Shanghai and there were small groups of Jews that lived in port cities across the way and Calcutta was sort of the shining capital of this area. I was recently in Hong Kong, I'd gone to give a talk over there and they talked about their Sefer Torahs coming from Calcutta and they looked to Calcutta for guidance at the time because it was the largest community. Hong Kong was nothing at that time compared to what Calcutta is and how things change, right? So this is um, the Navy Shalom. Um, I kind of like the synagogue. On the balcony you see is a old chupa, a stand, which is, uh, they used to put a cloth on top of it where marriages would take place. So my mother would have got married under that chuppah because she got married here in the Navy Shalom Synagogue. And um, I was talking to you about some of the more elaborate ritual paintings. You can see one in the hachal. And uh, it's a smaller hachal, so we would have had less safer Torahs over here. But um, yes, I like the synagogue. So you can see they all follow the same pattern. Um, but grander and grander as the wealth of the community grew. So I had set out these posters in a logical order. Now they're just thrown here, but these are that visual history of the community that I have, the beautiful posters I made. This is a picture of my mom on her engagement. And this is my mom and dad with their wedding cake. This is my mom and dad in Agarpara in Riverside. There was a lovely home over there. So, yeah. So this is the Jewish girls' school. As you can see behind me is the A.R. Gabe building. The Gabes were another very wealthy family and obviously must have donated the money for the building. So that's why their name is up there. Um, this school moved to, from Pollock Street, which I showed you, to Park Street and opened in 1960. By that time, they were already taking um, non-Jewish girls because we didn't have enough Jews in the community. Uh, as I told you today, the school is 90% Muslim. 
Today is going to be a big day, a special day at the Jewish Girls School because they're having a reunion, I just heard. So you may talk to some of the alumni. I can see that they're busy setting up. Um, the school does um, the ISC board. Um, what's really nice about the school is a lot of the kids are from ordinary Muslim families. Uh, their parents often come and stand waiting for them in burqa. The, some of the girls come with burqa and then they change and then they wear a school uniform with the Star of David. And in Calcutta, nobody thinks that's strange, which is nice. They observe some of the Jewish holidays, not all. Uh, when my mother was going to school, they had many Jewish teachers, and Jewish teachers were very well known across Calcutta. They taught in many of the well-known well schools, but they also had some Anglo-Indian teachers. And uh, during Miss Ladi's time, when she was the principal, she also hired Indian teachers who were very qualified to teach. The, the school has had many famous alumni. It also has a Hannah Sen, who was, um, went on to become you know, a very major political figure in India under the Congress party. Her grandson is Kamal Chinoy, who now teaches at JNU. Uh, there was also her sister Regina Guha, who taught here for a while. Regina Guha is a really important character. She died very young, but she was the first woman who was trained at presidency and was a lawyer and argued in the court for women to be lawyers. That case in 1916 didn't go through and finally women were accepted as lawyers under a Parsi woman who made the same case, a Kawasji, which was some later, but it was really Regina who was the forerunner. And this was really um, outstanding uh, by any standards. The women in Britain were not, uh, were not lawyers or pleaders at the time. So she's, an uh, she's, she's also an alumni of the school. She went to another school, but she came here and uh, was uh, taught here and was a principal for a short period of time, as was Hannah Sen. Um, so there are many well-known alumni and we can actually, if the hall is open, we can look at some of the plaques and see some of the students uh, and w which years they graduated. I know my mother's name is on one of the plaques. She was a head girl of the school. Uh, this school is very nostalgic for me. I didn't go to the Jewish girls school. I went to a school around the corner, but my grandmother was the warden of the hostel. This is the hostel. It looks like an old castle. At one time, there was um, also some classrooms below. Um, and the second floor was a hostel, and it was for girls of the community who either didn't have a strong family or for some reason were not able to stay at home or Miss Ladi thought it would be better for them to be at the school and when my granny was here there were about 20 or 30 Jewish girls they were all much bigger than me so they used to play with me and have fun with me and I used to have fun with them and there was a piano and they would come and we'd sit together and have dinner and I used to my granny's room was over here on the side and she used to try to teach me Hebrew These are all the girls who were passing out in the 1940s and 1950s. There were small classes of students. The classes weren't very big. Six and eight Jewish girls in a class. Well, it seems like 1949 had quite a lot more, 10 of them.